Hello and welcome to Alice is Everywhere. My name is Heather and today we are going to continue our wrap-up of the book Through the Looking Glass by Lewis Carroll. If you just happened upon this podcast for the very first time and have never actually read Through the Looking Glass, go back 11 episodes or so and you can start the book from the beginning. Or if you've never read its predecessor, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, then you can go all the way back to episode one of Alice is Everywhere. And I'm saying this all because a friend of mine went to check out my podcast and see what it's all about. And he was very confused because he just started listening to a random episode, I think chapter four of Looking Glass or something. So I thought maybe I should make a point of explaining what's up every once in a while so that new listeners are not hurt and confused. I'd also like to make a point today and all future episodes to stop saying, by the way, I just edited two previous podcasts and I said, by the way, like a dozen times per episode. That is unacceptable. I just looked for some synonyms for that overused phrase and I think my favorite of the bunch is incidentally. My least favorite is in as much as, and I'm neutral on relating to, speaking of, and well on the subject. But I will work on incorporating all of those phrases today. By the way, kidding. I'm just kidding. Last episode, we discussed the White Knight, Wednesday Week, Worsted, and a few other details from Chapter 1. One more note about Chapter 1. Do you remember when Alice first observes that the chess pieces are alive, they can't see or hear her, and she rather inexplicably grabs the White King's pencil at one point and makes him write... The white knight is sliding down the poker. He balances very badly. Poker being the fireplace poker. Now, we learn much later in the book, chapter 8 to be exact, that the white knight, indeed, balances very badly. He has a horrible time staying on his horse and is constantly falling off. Riddle me this. Does Alice already know that the white knight balances very badly in chapter 1 because in Looking Glass Land, things work backwards? Not all things, of course. Alice does seem to be advancing forwards through the chessboard-type country, of course. But there are plenty of instances of things happening backwards. Jabberwocky is actually written backwards. Alice has to hand out the cake to the lion and the unicorn, then cut it into pieces. The white queen screams before she pricks her finger. Hatta does the time before he does the crime, etc., etc. You'll recall at one point the white queen tells Alice it's a poor sort of memory that only works backwards. So is this, in chapter one, an instance of Alice's memory working forwards? Now that she's through the looking glass, does she have this ability, as well as all the other looking glass inhabitants, but she just doesn't know how to harness it yet? Inquiring Heathers want to know. And guess what? I have more to say about chapter one. That is because we left off last time just as Alice was about to read the ever so famous nonsense poem, Jabberwocky. Now, in the text, when she picks up the book, the entire first stanza is printed out backwards. My apologies, I only attempted to read the first line backwards to you back in chapter one. I thought reading all four lines would be unnecessarily painful to your ears. It didn't turn out as badly as I thought it would, but let's face it, I am no Twin Peaks dwarf. Alice quickly realizes that she needs to hold the book up to the mirror in order to read the poem. And I'm going to read it to you now, since it has been a while. Jabberwocky. "'Twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the barragoves, and the mome wraths outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jub-jub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. 
He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the maxim foe he sought, so rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgy wood, and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, went through and through, the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? Come to my arms, my beamish boy. O frabjous day, kaloo kalay, he chortled in his joy. Twas brillig and the slithy toves, did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoves, and the mome wraths outgrabe. You'll recall that Humpty Dumpty told Alice the definitions to the words in the first and last stanza in chapter six. Now, if we take Humpty at his word, and as I mentioned before, it turns out we should, as Lewis Carroll wrote a precursor to Jabberwocky years before and gave mostly similar definitions, if we take Humpty's definitions, the first and last stanza means something like, it was just before dinner when the lithe and slimy badgers were going around and around and boring holes on the grass around a sundial. Flimsy and miserable were the extinct parrots, and the solemn turtles shrieked. Something like that makes perfect sense, obviously. If you're wondering how I know how to pronounce made-up words, it's because Lewis Carroll told me. In a preface to a later edition of Looking Glass, dated Christmas 1896, L.C. answered some haters about the whole idea of the book being a chess game. We're going to get into that on our all-chess episode. And he ended with the note, The new words in the poem Jabberwocky have given rise to some differences of opinion as to their pronunciation. So it may be well to give instructions on that point also. Pronounce slithy as if it were the two words, sly v. Make the g hard in gyre and gimbal, and pronounce wrath to rhyme with bath. Carol gives us some other instruction as well. We haven't talked about his third book, the non-Alice, Hunting of the Snark, but in a preface to Snark, he added, As this poem is to some extent connected with the lay of the Jabberwock, let me take this opportunity of answering a question that has often been asked me how to pronounce slithy toves. The I in slithy is long, as in writhe, and toves is pronounced so as to rhyme with groves. Again, the first O in barogoves is pronounced like the O in borrow. I have heard people try to give it the sound of the O in worry. Such is human perversity. And I can't stop laughing at such as human perversity. Oh, Elsie. Now, many of these made-up words, or new words, as Lewis Carroll calls them, are portmanteaus. Slithy is lithe and slimy. Mimsy is flimsy and miserable. Chortle is chuckle and snort. You may be surprised at some of the words that were not made up. At least I was. Whiffling was Victorian slang for being sneaky or evasive. Beamish means shining brightly. Perhaps the most ridiculous, a kalu is a type of duck that hangs around Scotland. He's called a kalu because that is the noise he makes. <laughs> Come on. Other stuff like tulgi and tulgi wood and burble, Carol admitted in some letters that he didn't mean anything by them. No hidden meanings at all, just cool sounding words. I'd like us all to take a moment and imagine you live in Spain or Germany or South Africa and you are attempting to translate through the looking glass and Jabberwocky into your native tongue. How do you think that would go? Oh my goodness. Well, on the subject of Jabberwocky, there is a really interesting picture book from 2007 called Jabberwocky, illustrated by Christopher Myers. The text is just the poem, straight up, but the pictures illustrating it 
depict a one-on-one -on -one basketball game between a kid and a 14-fingered beast. I'm going to read a review from Booklist to give you a clearer idea of this tome. Pulsing with vibrant color, this imaginative interpretation of Carol's classic nonsense poem takes it out of the pages of Through the Looking Glass into a contemporary urban setting and onto the basketball court. The calmer twas brillig verses that begin and end the poem are illustrated with children outdoors, skipping rope and playing at an open fire hydrant, while the more intense middle verses involve a young man challenging the fierce, enormous jabberwock on the court. The Jabberwock, apparently some twenty feet tall and well-equipped for blocking shots with his bulky frame and outsized six-fingered hands, is no match for his nimbler, lighter-than-air opponent who triumphs in the end. Oh, frabjuste, kalu kale. End quote. I've seen this book in person, and it really is very striking, visually. And I was heartened to read the re user reviews. On Amazon, a woman said she gave it to her three-year-old grandson for Christmas, and he loved it so much he had to read it to him three times before he would even open any other presents. A first grade teacher writes that she read the poem to her class and asked them what they thought it was about. Then she pulled out the Christopher Myers book to show them how it could be interpreted in various ways, even a basketball game, and it totally blew their minds. Naturally, when we think of ways to introduce Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass to kids, we understandably concentrate on the angle of Alice herself. She is the main character, after all. Whether it's the Disney movie or a little golden book or what have you. But what a fun, creative way to introduce Alice and Lewis Carroll to kids with this inventive interpretation of Jabberwocky. I'll have to make sure I recommend it when I write this year's Alice's Everywhere Holiday Shopping Guide. Incidentally, there's a lot of debate about when to introduce the Alice books to kids. I personally think seven years old is perfect, since that is how old I was when I first read it. I chatted with some Lewis Carroll Society members who think junior high is more like it. It's one of those questions that has no correct answer, I suppose, as everyone is different. But a delightful Jabberwocky picture book? You can give it to a toddler. Indoctrinate them young, I say. All right, we're finally out of chapter one. Don't worry, I don't have that many additional notes on every single chapter. Alice finally gets out of Looking Glass House and runs into those rude flowers in Chapter 2. The rose tells her, It's my opinion that you never think at all. The violet says, I never saw anybody who looked stupider. That one seems particularly uncalled for. Alice extricates herself from their insults and, worse, puns, and heads over to see the Red Queen. And it's while talking to her that she sees that the whole country is laid out like a chessboard. Alice says she would like to be a queen. The Red Queen tells her that she can be a white pawn because the White Queen's baby is too young to play. Then she gives her instructions on how to advance through the chessboard and, ta-da, become queen. Why the Red Queen is helping out a pawn from the other white side? I have no idea. Now, in that 1896 preface I mentioned before, Lewis Carroll actually included a drawing of a chessboard. When the book starts, the Red Queen is already next to Alice, the pawn. So we're not starting with the chess pieces all neatly lined up on either side. And I guess that makes sense, because the Red Queen and White Knight and all of them, they, they live in Looking Glass Land. They would just be going about their lives, right, when Alice arrives? Just because there's a visitor doesn't mean a whole new game begins. Here's a little something to blow your minds. Everyone Alice talks to in Through the Looking Glass is on a square next to hers. What? It's true. Chapter 3 sees Alice take her cuckoo bananas train journey 
Why does she need to take a train? Because it's her first move, and as a pawn, she's allowed to move two squares. So she needs to make some tracks. <laughs> tracks, train. On the train, I don't think I mentioned this, we have another example, like the caterpillar in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, of some possible ESP happening. Extrasensory perception. At one point, Alice thinks to herself, there's no use in speaking, and the other people on the train think back to her in unison, better say nothing at all, language is worth a thousand pounds a word. Now, we have an inkling through these examples that despite being a religious fellow, Lewis Carroll was open to the idea of ESP. How open? I just learned that he and some Victorian pals formed a little group they called the Society of Psychical Research back in February of 1882. Who are the other super groovy intellectuals willing to consider the possibility of the paranormal? Charter members, besides our friend Charles Lutwich Dodson, included William Gladstone, Alfred Tennyson, John Ruskin, and Arthur Balfour. I'll admit I looked up who Arthur Balfour was. It's a name I've heard, but I didn't really know what his deal was. Turns out he was a politician who was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from 1902 to 1905, so that's 20 years after forming the Psychical Society. I wonder if he considered that a uh, youthful indiscretion that he kept under wraps. I got this information about the Society from Behind the Looking Glass by Sherry Ackerman, a book I've mentioned before. I'll be honest with you, I just went to do a little more research online, and Wikipedia does not mention any of those cats that I just mentioned as charter members. Seems rather strange that Tennyson and Carol et al. would not be mentioned, but I'm going to stick with my original source, Ms. Ackerman, because I think we all kind of take Wikipedia as gospel and tend to forget that it's just average Joes contributing, and it is not infallible by any means. The Society of Psychical Research, still alive and well today, apparently. So if any UK listeners would care to join, hmm? Alice meets the Tweedles in Chapter 4, and here's the walrus and the carpenter. The Tweedles are rooks, if you're wondering, castles, and they are on the white team, like Alice. Another random and not at all important walrus and carpenter note, I worked at an oyster bar in college named the walrus and the carpenter, in Boston at Faneuil Hall. The oyster bar is still there, I just looked it up. I didn't end up working there because of my deep abiding love for Alice, oddly enough. My boyfriend at the time had been working there, and then he got a full-time office job somewhere, so I just kind of took over for him out of convenience. I don't remember much, except that I worked a 12-hour shift every Saturday, and when I left, I did not smell very good. And I remember a guy who had worked there for eight years had a huge, throbbing right forearm and a puny little left forearm from shucking, and I vowed to not work there very long or become ambidextrous so as to uh, avoid that same fate. I'm going to wrap up today with a little travel review. I have stayed at a bed and breakfast called the Jabberwock Inn. It's in Monterey, California. I don't recommend it. <laughs> that sounds harsh. Let me emphasize that it is a lovely inn. The breakfasts are amazing. The couple that owns it is very nice and all about service. Really, your coffee cup and wine glass do not go unfilled when you are staying at the Jabberwock Inn. But, being the Alice in Wonderland fan that I am, some may say fanatic, I was hoping that the owners would be really into Alice, and it turns out they are not at all. They inherited the theme when they bought the inn, and they kept a lot of the Alice stuff up on the walls. They do give a little spiel when you first get there about the Jabberwock, the poem, but they just so don't care 
about Alice or Lewis Carroll. I tried to comment about a commemorative plate set they have on display, and I swear to you, the owner did not even break his stride as he walked by. I honestly can't think of a way he could have seemed less interested in what I had to say unless he picked up the phone and actually made a phone call while I was still talking. And I had even sent them a blog post in which I had mentioned the inn, and I brought that up and he said, oh yeah, you did send that. I didn't read it. Which, I mean, I wasn't expecting special treatment or anything, but I thought that as a business owner, he might be interested in some free publicity, you know, enough to actually click on a link that's sent to him, and I thought he might see me as an opportunity to engage with an Alice fan, who might then spread the word to other Alice fans about his fabulous inn, you know, through her website that is completely devoted to Alice in Wonderland. And he just obviously did not see it that way, which is fine, but my husband and I go to Monterey quite often. It's a nice in-state road trip for us, and we most likely will not stay at the Jabberwock again. It's pricey, which is fine. Pretty much all of Monterey and Pacific Grove are, but if I'm going to spend that kind of money, I want it to be for something special and not some super tepid Alice theme. I mean, I'd prefer to be closer to the water than the Jabberwock is, and you can get a hotel right across the street from the bay for the same price. There you go. You're a consumer advocate. Heather Hayer. And that is where I'm going to end it today. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed those insults from the Talking Flowers, be sure to check out the Alice's Everywhere blog as I just posted the top 10 insults from the Alice in Wonderland books. And you know Rose and Violet are at the top of that list. My favorite Alice Byrne of all time? You're so exactly like other people. Courtesy of Humpty Dumpty. Whew. Shudder. By the way, everybody, your hair wants cutting. Talk soon!